Well, I just want to say how thankful I am in a, in a world that's constantly changing with issues that are constantly before us, that the Bible gives us a place to stand. I was just thinking about that this week and reading. And for example, in 2 Timothy 3, a well-known passage, Paul says to Timothy in this, his last letter, he says, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Just continue. Persevere. I'm talking about persevering today. Persevere. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Uh, competent, equipped for every good work. We have a place to stand, and so we rejoice in that. And when we look at change and what the Lord wants to do in our lives, there's a little paradigm that we use. It's got four lines, kind of an overview of biblical narrative. The first is creation. God made the heavens and the earth. And he created male and female in his image. And then we have the fall. Adam and Eve fell into sin, and we've received from our first parents a sin nature. But in the fullness of time, we have redemption. The eternal God became a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins, and rose victorious over death, so that all who look to him might be saved and have an eternity in heaven. And then the fourth line would be restoration. The God is in the process of building his people and changing them from glory to glory to be like Christ. To bring back, not fully, but in part, the glory of Eden in our homes and in our families and in our relationships and in our minds. That God, by His Holy Spirit, who's poured out at Pentecost, wants to change us continuously to be His people. And so that, that, that's the issue that we've been addressing uh, in, in these weeks out of Second Peter is, is how people change. There's a marvelous little book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And in letter 13, these are supposedly our letters written by a senior demon to a junior demon. And this is what the senior demon writes in the 13th letter. He says, regarding the new believer, let him do anything but act. No amount of piety or prayer or Bible reading in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. Goes on and says, the more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever act. And in the long run, the less he'll be able to even feel. He says, of all things, he says, as you tempt this young Christian, do not let him transfer his affections into actions. And so the whole passage we're looking at today is, is about acting. In fact, Verse 5 says, for this very reason, make every effort, act. Make every effort for this very reason, make every effort. And so as I think about this, I ask him, what, what compels us to, to want to change? What compels us to want to change? In part, is taught throughout this passage and explicitly from four verses, but what compels us to want to change? I've showed you this little diagram the last two weeks, but it shows a man who's a, who's a, a believer. I believe there's two types of Christians here. 
One is a person who doesn't make Christ central in his life. He, he's forgetful. He says he, he's become nearsighted and blind. He forgets that he's been cleansed from his sins. Forget doesn't mean he's just he's not aware of it, but it's not central. And so he stumbles and he's unproductive and he's not fruitful in the Lord. On the other hand, Peter says, if you make every effort to add to your faith these attitudes and these attributes, you'll, you'll be like a man who doesn't stumble. He is productive, he is fruitful, and he will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he says in verse 11. So, so two types of people. So I'll say, well, one reason that I, I want to change is, is I, I understand their consequences. And that's why delighting in the Lord is essentially important. So, so as I understand consequences, number two, verse five says, for this very reason. So what does for this very reason refer to? I mentioned it last week. Let me say it again. Number one, you received a faith that's like precious with the apostles. The faith you've received is just like the apostle Peter and Paul. Number two, grace and peace are continuously multiplied in your life by the righteousness that's found only in Christ. Number three, he has called you unto himself. He's called you by his own glory and his goodness. Number four, he's given you his divine promises, the word of God. Number five, he's given them to you so that you can participate in the divine nature, become like Christ. And he's given you these promises, number six, so that you can avoid the strangulating nature of the worldly system. And based upon that, he says, for this very reason, make every effort. Then he says, make every effort to add to your faith. We covered two last week. Moral excellence, and to moral excellence add the knowledge of the Lord. And today, two more. And to the knowledge of the Lord add self-control, and to self-control add perseverance. Now, self-control, when we think of self-control, we usually think about what we eat or uh, how we spend our, our calorie intake or whatever, uh, Self-control in the Bible is, is living our life out of the overflow of the worship of God as we delight in Him. This is what John Calvin said. He says, regarding delight and the overflow, he says, the human will does not obtain grace by freedom, but obtains freedom by grace. When the feelings, listen, when the feelings of delight have been imparted through the same grace, the human will is formed to endure. It is strengthened with unconquerable fortitude. And he says this. He says, delight, delighting in the greatness of Christ gives us fortitude and endurance and joy. And so when it comes to self-control, it's not grit your teeth and moralism. It's gladly living under the banner of Jesus. It is, it is understanding, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, you've been bought with a price, glorify God with your body. It, it's, it's the same concept of James chapter 1 where James says everyone should be, verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, self-control. Proverbs 16, 32, he who rules his spirit is better than the mighty. 
And he who restrains his anger is better than one who captures a fortified city. Self-control. Self-control, again, is the overflow of the worship and gladness that's found in following Christ. And it's all about how you think and how you worship. See, in the early church, there was uh, all types of errors. There were two primary primary errors. There there was, in, in second... Peter, we've mentioned chapter 2, talks about the sensualist. They were greedy. They had eyes full of adultery. They're never satisfied. They were, they were enslaved to their pleasures, the sensualist. But those also, on the other hand, in Philippians, for example, there are people who are, are the sensualist. Let me show you Philippians 3. Philippians 3, Paul says this. Paul the Pharisee, who's just rejoiced in the righteousness of Christ, and he says, that which I, I was laboring for and straining for, I now consider as nothing compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. And then he says, regarding the people that are trying to seduce you and lead you astray, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he says their God is their belly. He says these, 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 these Judaizers, the only thing they want to talk about is how wonderful they are in God's sight because they have dietary laws. And it's all about diet and regimen and glorifying of what they've done and what they can accomplish. And, and their glories and their shame because they just glorify the fact that they're circumcised. And that's, that's the sign of being on the in crowd. And that's, that's part of earning God's favor. You're, you're circumcised. Their, their glory is in their shame. He says, but we, our people have a citizenship in heaven. And we glory in the greatness of Christ. And we await his coming. And so, so you, you have the libertines and the harsh centurists, and they come to the same place. They kill the life in the Holy Spirit. They destroy everything that God wants to do in developing a worshiping, loving group of people. And, and they lead you into bondage. I was reading this week about the, the death of David Bowie, Bowie, excuse me, Bowie, the rock star. And I read his obituary, then read some other articles, read some other articles. And, um, and if you were speaking to group of people about his death. He's a very talented man, but he spent his life many decades in dissipation and abuse and immorality and breaking people and defrauding people. And it's a horrible, horrible. And you can just say, you know, here he is in this period. He's living this way and especially in the 70s and 80s. And it was a horrible life. And you show that to young people say, look at the ramifications of immorality and drug abuse and so forth and so on. And, and, you, and you can, if you show them that, you can make a dent in their worldview because you see the end result of bad decisions. But I think it only takes you so far. If you want to take a bazooka and make a hole in the secularist worldview that lives only for today and only for what you can own. You talk about the glory and the wonder and the grandeur and the greatness of Christ. You talk about the hope of heaven. You talk about the stern reality of what Jesus says in Matthew 16. We're on the hills of where he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the mind of God. You have the mind of the world because he says, you're never going to the cross. And then Jesus turns to his men and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever would 
lose his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You say, God really loves us. And God in his triune glory wants us to have joy and laughter and happiness as we walk before him. Therefore, self-control is the overflow of the worship of the living God in our lives. It's not the grim, white-knuckled experience. It's the life of worship. Then he says this, and to your self-control add perseverance. Perseverance along obedience in the same direction. Now let me talk to you about perseverance. I'll give you some examples. And I've used this man before, but he's just one of my heroes. This man is William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was raised in a privileged home. His father died when he was very young. Um, and he was exposed to the evangelical gospel, the gospel of grace, through an aunt and an uncle. And his mom heard about it and took him out of their home, and she was, did not like the gospel of grace. And Wilberforce grew up in a godless environment, brilliant, 5'3", five, 5'3", three. Five, three, an incredible voice, great orator, great mind. Uh, in his late to mid-20s, he became a believer, member of parliament. Uh, this is what one account says that some people thought he was mad because of his change in life when he came to faith in Christ. But a childhood friend remarked, quote, if this be madness, I hope it will bite us all, close quote, when he saw the change. Wilberforce was in Parliament, and so as he was exposed to the horrific nature of slavery, two years after his conversion, he introduced for the first time in 1789 a bill for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, which was unthinkable. He was laughed out of, out of the chamber, and, but he labored and labored and he labored. And there was a group of people called the Clapham Sect that would meet outside of London on the weekends. They would worship together in the local church. They would pray and strategize and think and befriend each other. And they did that for 40 years, 1790 to 1830. And we were labored and he pushed and he labored and he pushed and on July the 26th, 1833, the abolition of slavery bill was passed in its third reading in the House of Commons. And a messenger rushed from the House of Commons to Wilberforce's house, knocked on the door, and told the people there that slavery was now abolished in the British Empire. Wilberforce died three days later at the age of 73. Now listen to me. He labored for 44 years. 44 years. He persevered. He persevered. Another example. I was reading some history lately, and there's a, a man named Hans Asmussen. And Hans Asmussen was a Bible-believing Lutheran pastor in Germany in 1933, right before the Nazis came to power. He saw where the Nazis were going, and so he got some of his friends together, and they wrote something called the Altoona Accord. And the Altoona Accord said, there is no power on earth that supersedes the church of Jesus Christ. That we are disciples of Jesus. And everything falls under that rubric. And if any state or any movement seeks to take the authority, the ultimate authority in the life of the Christian, they must be resisted. The Nazis came to power. They confronted him. He spent the whole war and beyond in prison. 
He was, he was released when the war was over, and he and a guy named Martin Neimoller wrote something called the Council of Eck, which just took place in Stuttgart, Germany, six months after the war. And this is what they said in part. He said, they said, we did fight for long years in the name of Jesus Christ against the mentality that found its awful expression in the national socialist regime of violence, the Nazis. But we accuse ourselves for not standing to our beliefs more courageously, for not praying more faithfully, for not believing more joyously, I love that, joyously, and for not loving more ardently. And what these men were saying, these men were in prison. They were, they were imprisoned. And they saw many fellow pastors murdered. They said, we could have done more, and we repent of that. And so I just, I just think of these men who stood faithfully. And I, I look at I look at the church in America today. I want to just make a few comments. Um, One of my concerns is that because of instant imaging and multiple media outlets, that we can become, listen, we can become unshockable. We can become unshockable. Or as Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, we have forgotten what it means to blush. When we see a picture of a soldier standing over the body of a little baby that's been washed up on the beach, this been from a capsized boat of people trying to flee ISIS, and it's just another image. Please don't let that happen. We can, we can become unshockable. And today on Scientific Human Life Sunday, I, I, I fear that we become unshockable. A few examples. Uh, just a couple of years ago, three years ago, almost, Kermit Gosnell, a physician in Philadelphia, was uh, investigated. Policemen went to his uh, abortion clinic, and he was arrested, and he was convicted of the murder of Three babies. He, he, he would deliver these three babies that were, that were aborted alive, and he would take uh, scissors and snip their spinal column, and, and they would die. And when police raided his clinic and went to his house, this article from a national magazine said he was not disturbed by the intrusion. In fact, he warned police not to go into the basement. And eventually, then one of them put on one of these jumpsuits and went into the basement and he was immediately covered with a flea infestation, but there was very expensive equipment and appliances there, including a machine used to sterilize medical instruments. And finally, one officer parted the cabinet doors and saw arrayed in a series of specimen jars shapes that looked instantly familiar, but were not so, if it were not so out of the context, he couldn't understand the process. Poking out were tiny and perfect little feet, baby's toes. Meanwhile, Gosnell was upstairs playing Chopin as he waited for the police officers to come upstairs. There was a book written entitled, Gosnell's Babies Inside the Mind of America's Most Notorious Abortion Doctor, and the author says that he was indeed or is a criminally insane sociopath. 
And you think, is that, uh, let me just read this. I, August 2010, police searched a Maryland abortion clinic owned by a man named Stephen Brigham. After a woman was severely wounded during an abortion procedure, police officers were shocked when they found a chest freezer in the facility which contained approximately 35 late-term fetuses. The latest fetal age was measured at 36 weeks. That's nine months. That's nine months. Other fetuses inside were 28 weeks, 20 weeks, 33, and 35 weeks. And I read that, and I go, and I, I go... I think of a president a few years ago, President Clinton said, I want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And I think about the recent findings of, uh, of these videos with Planned Parenthood leaders who are talking about harvesting organs and making fun of aborted babies and how those, those, are, those, those videos have not been doctored. We know that now. And, and, and how Planned Parenthood is supporting Mrs. Clinton, and she's run to their embrace, and it breaks my heart. And I think it's an abomination. And it's our nation. It's our nation. And, and, I, and I read these things, and I, th I think about the many men and women who have been impacted by abortion and how I, I weep for them, and we want to embrace and care for people. We're not here to bludgeon people to death, but we're here to stand up and say that life is a gift from God, and we need to be a nation who understands that. And, and so I say, I, I, I say as, a, as, a, as a people, listen to me, listen to me, persevere. Persevere in prayer. Persevere in loving people. All kinds of people. Those people that would disagree and talk about reproductive freedom and so forth and so on, we love them. We, we persevere in adopting babies and foster parenting and working in this church with our, with our, our friends class for children with special needs. We, we persevere in speaking for those who cannot protect themselves. And yet we say with Pastor Hans Osmussen, we have not done enough. We haven't believed joyously. We haven't prayed more fervently. And don't become unshockable. Don't become people who just hear these things and it drives by. Do not become unshockable. Do not forget to weep. And so I just say, church, persevere. And I salute you. So many of you have stood year after year after year in this area with courage and dignity. And we supported crisis pregnancy centers, and we've done that, and, and I, I salute you for that. And I, I just say to myself, I read church history, I read the Bible, God doesn't say be faithful as long as you're winning. He says be faithful. You be faithful. You be faithful and leave the results with me. And, and, and listen, the church has taken it on the chin the last few years. Time after time, boom, boom. I mean, same-sex marriage, the unisex movement, so forth and so on. And this whole issue, this thing, it's, it's boom. But I've called to be faithful. I'm, I'm called to live in such a way that when the generations from now, if the Lord tarries, look at us, they'll say, they were faithful. They were faithful. You know what? We're standing on the shoulders of men and women who went before us. Like the hymn says, we're treading where the saints have trod. Thanks be to God for faithful people. So persevere. And let me show you one of my favorite people. I love this guy. 
I, I, I love him so much that if, if, if we have a baby, I, I don't think we will. And it's a boy, I'm going to name him Winston or Spencer or maybe even Churchill. Just go for broke. Just name him Churchill. But, but Winston Spencer Churchill. He gave an address on October the 29th, 1941 to a school called Harrow Academy where he had gone to school. And let me just set the stage for you. October 29th, 1941, France had fallen in six weeks, about a year and a half before that. It was England against the world, literally. It was two months before D-Day, about, and before the American, America came to the world. It was England against the world. Uh, Japan was against England. Japan is going down all through Asia, destroying China, conquering everybody. And then they were only four months from the unbelievable happening, which is... In February, Singapore fell to the Japanese, the impregnable island fortress of Singapore. So it was England against the world, one small island nation, a little bit bigger than Oregon. Think about it. Great people, great literature, horrible food. There they are. Cucumber sandwiches, fish and chips, blood pudding. What do you think? Anyway, England against the world. And so Churchill goes to the Harrow Academy and he addresses, he gives this address. It's only a three-page address. You ought to read it every other month. It will just put starch in your spirit. This is what he says. This is his famous statement from the speech. I want to talk about two statements. So he looks at this group of boys and their parents. And he says, never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. And nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And he kind of growled it, as only Churchill could. Never give in. Persevere. And then he goes on, he says, he says this. This is, this is great. This is good. Boy, this is good. He says, you sang here a verse of a school song. You sang that extra verse that was written in my honor. They added a verse to a song in his honor, which I was very greatly complimented by and which you have repeated today. But there is one word in that stanza I want to alter. I want to do so last year, but I did not venture. It is the line, quote, not lest we praise in darker days, close quote. He says, I have obtained the headmaster's permission to alter darker to sterner. I want you to sing, he says, not lest we praise thee in sterner days. And then he says this as he closes his speech. And it is so good. He says, do not speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. It's England against the world. The greatest days our country has ever lived, and we must all thank God that we've been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. And so I look at us and I say, you know, these are, these are at times very hard days, let's be honest. 
But God has let us be birthed and born and living in 2016. And we need to say, God, you've called us to live in this time. And we're going to live as unto you. And we're going to be faithful unto you. And we're going to go forth. And we are going to persevere. And one thing I love about old saints in the Lord who are gray and tottering and walk with a cane is they have persevered and persevered and persevered and persevered. And I say to you, young people especially, persevere. The Bible gives you a place to stand, persevere against the encroaching darkness, persevere. Do it with love and dignity and respect and brokenness, but persevere. And and in the area of sanctity of human life, in the area of, of the way we comport ourselves, the way we love people, persevere. And may God bless our country, but 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 we've called to be faithful people. So persevere. Just persevere. Thanks be to God for his grace. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, this is, um, th- this is the, Lord, the Lord's day. It's a day that you set apart for us to be refreshed. And I pray that we'd be refreshed. I pray that we would be people who are self-controlled out of the overflow of worship of Jesus. That the overflow of the worship of Christ by the Spirit governs our language, governs our thoughts, governs our reactions, uh, just governs our, 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 our being. And I pray we'd persevere. I thank you for men and women sitting here today who have persevered for 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. They've gotten up, they've done the right thing, they've loved, they've sacrificed, they've walked in joy, they've persevered. And I pray that those of us who are younger would look around at some of these older people who've done that and say, thank you. Thank you. Um, Lord, uh, we pray for our country. Uh, we thank you for the, the, the privilege of being an American. We thank you that you've called us to be good citizens. And we pray, God, you'd have mercy upon our land. We pray for the church, that the church would be bold and strong and tender and broken and united and pleading and expectant. God, do that which only you can do in our lives. So, blessed be your name this day. And uh, we thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.